each week the missionaries would come and share. And um, so this one Saturday, it was like probably the fourth or fifth Saturday, and the missionary came and um, usually the missionaries would get up and they would give their testimony and share, you know, um, you know how they got called to the mission field and, you know, their, about their family and different things. And they would share all of that and then... Um, the, and then, then they would have a teaching. So each missions week, each, each class, we would have a teaching on Islam, on the history of missions, all those kind of things. So this week I got there and it was, it was early on Saturday morning. I was really tired, hadn't had any coffee yet, and feeling miserable. <laughs> and I didn't have a good attitude. And then so the missionary gets up there and, you know, she's this uh, Korean-American woman and very plain looking and and she starts teaching on spiritual warfare, right? And like I said, I didn't have a good attitude that morning. And I'm, she just starts right off. Doesn't tell who she is, anything about her. Very stern. You know, she made me think of like a stern principal of a school, you know. Um, and I thought, yeah, if she was the principal of school, I wouldn't want to go <laughs> see the principal. And so she's, she just starts sharing all these Bible verses and going in-depth on spiritual warfare. But... I'm thinking, I know those verses, you know, I've taught those verses, you know, it's like, you know, tell us who you are, you know, this is just another boring (laughs) um, Bible study, you know, and that was my attitude, right, and so finally we get to break time after an hour, and we go get some coffee and stuff, and I'm like, oh, good, um, and so she says, after you come back from break, I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony, right, so anyway, go get coffee, get a little more energy, and we come back and she does a little, before she shares, she does a slideshow, right, with no, no words, uh, just some music and, you know, slideshows. And in the slideshow, she's wearing, um, she's a doctor. She's wearing a stethoscope and doctor stuff, and I'm shocked. I'm like, wow. And, um, and then the slides go to, she's at all these, like, signing ceremonies. You know how, you know, when the president's in the White House and they're doing a big signing ceremony and they got all the pens and stuff? But she's there with all these Afghani leaders. And so they look like Saudi princes. They're all dressed in all the robes and stuff, very, um, you know, looking very, very nice. And she's there with all these men on these signing ceremonies, and she's like the only woman. Amongst, amongst them all. And what she was doing was she was, she was started all these um, non-governmental organizations there, NGOs, right there in um, Afghanistan. And so I'm thinking, wow, she must be pretty important, you know. And she's a doctor, you know, so I was kind of surprised. So then um, she starts sharing her, sharing her story. And so she was Korean-American. Her family immigrated. I'm going to go through this kind of quick. Um, she took like an hour and a half to share this. But, and Pastor David just shared this. Did he come here and share this story? Um, uh, just so you know, he heard it from me. <laughs> um, so I'm sharing it because um, it's what the Holy Spirit was ministering to me. And so her story has kind of become part of my story. But um, she shared that um, she, Im- her family immigrated to America. She was 16 years old. She started attending um, um, high school. It was hard for her to learn English. Um, she, um, she, in high school, she ended up getting involved, uh, invited to a church, and so anyway, she got involved with a youth group, ended up getting saved, and her Korean American church was very involved in missions, she started to get really interested in missions and stuff, and she ended up, um, 
um, going to college and during college she was still going on short-term mission trips and then her senior year she's praying about where God wants to send her in the mission field and every morning at 5 a.m. she's praying fervently and her father is not a Christian and her father thinks she's praying about what uh, what career to do so her father says why don't you become a doctor and she laughs because her English still wasn't very good she struggled with her grades and she thought that's silly and her father wanted her to become a doctor because he wanted her to make lots of money to support the family, of course. And so um, he, um, so a few days later, though, God says to her, why don't you become a doctor? And so she says, Lord, if you want me to be a doctor, then you're going to have to get me through into medical school, and you're going to have to get me through the whole process of all the exams and all the studying to become a doctor and through internship. And she says, God, if you, if you enable me to become a full doctor, I will go to the mission field for life for you. I'll commit my life to the mission field. And so um, she makes this deal with God. Well, anyway, God ends up getting her into medical school and all the way through, and she ends up becoming a doctor. And so she says, well, I can't go to the mission field yet because I haven't seen a patient yet. <laughs> I need to at least see a few patients and get, you know, learn some things, right? And so she opens a medical practice. Her medical practice does super, super well. She makes lots and lots of money. And she um, buys a house, buys a new car, buys lots of new clothes. And she's doing really, really well. And um, she has everything, right? She's like well, well off. And the only thing she doesn't have is a husband. So everybody's trying to hook her up with a husband. And so they hook her up with these rich businessmen and lawyers and other doctors. And she goes on all these dates. But the dates end as soon as she tells them that God's called her to the mission field for life. And so as soon as she says that, it's done and over, right? And so um, she said if she liked the guy, she might let him take him out a few times and then tell him. God's called her to the mission field. If she didn't like the guy at the end of the first dinner, she'd tell him God called her to the mission field for life, and that was the last date. And so, but eventually her pastor introduces her to this young Korean-American businessman, and he was a Christian, and um, they, you know, they have some dates or whatever, and this is the first guy she actually starts to like, but now she's got a problem. They have a a bunch of dates, and she actually likes him, but now there's a problem. She hasn't told him that God's called her to the mission field. So now she's stressing, because if she tells him, it means the relationship's over, but she knows she can't extend this relationship without telling him, <laughs> telling him this. So she finally prays, works up the courage, and she shares with them that, that God had called her to the mission field for life. And so he says, wonderful, he says, when I was a little boy, God called me to the mission field. And so, um, so she was pretty excited about that. So do you know that a lot of missionaries get called to the mission field when they're children? I didn't know that um, when I first uh, started studying missions. But, um, you know, God c can call any of us at any time. And so that's why I always encourage the kids, um, you can have a relationship with God now. You don't have to wait till later to get closer to God. If you say, oh, later I'm going to take God serious, or later I'm really going to try to get to know God. No, he's called us to know him now, and he understands us and knows our, our whole, our life, our whole story, everything about us, and so um, he can call us at any time. Even when we don't feel ready, God can call us. So, so anyway, they end up getting married. Uh, they have a couple kids. They have two daughters, 
and um, they do really well. He's a young businessman, but he's really good at what he does and makes lots of money. So they make tons and tons of money. She is a doctor. He is the businessman. Um, the, um, they buy lots of houses and properties and all this other stuff. But she knows in the back of her mind that God's called her to the mission field for life, right? And, and then one day, her husband says, you know, we got our two daughters here. Maybe we shouldn't take them to the mission field because something could happen to them if we take him to the mission field. And he says, I don't think we're supposed to go anymore. So then she was crushed. She was like, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to obey you, but I'm also supposed to obey my husband. Um, what do I do here? And so um, she says, God, you're going to have to show me from your word what I'm to do because I don't know what to do. So she's reading in Numbers one morning, and in Numbers it talks about where if a woman um, makes a vow to God and gets married, that um, once she's married, she no longer has to keep that vow to God. And so she felt like, oh, okay, God, that's the answer. I'm now freed up from that vow that I made. So she was content with that. So some months go by, some time goes by, and everything's fine, except then their church is hosting this mission school, the one I just went to in the spring. The church was hosting that mission school, and the two of them go, and they both realize God's called them to the mission field. And so they go on some short-term mission trips to the Middle East, much like the one I'm about to go on. And they, uh, they eventually, God calls them to Afghanistan. They spend two years getting ready to go to Afghanistan. It took them that long to sell all their properties and do everything and get ready to go. And at this time, Afghanistan, it was, we were majorly at war with the Afghanistan fighting the Taliban. So their church, which was a mission-sending church, all of a sudden didn't support them anymore. They were like, we don't think you should go to a war zone. <laughs> America's at war in Afghanistan, and you're telling us that God's called you to go to Afghanistan? That doesn't make any sense. And so they felt like they were supposed to go, but all the relatives were totally against them going to Afghanistan. And they said, you're going to take our granddaughters, <laughs> who were at that time were 8 and 10 years old, to Afghanistan? And so um, they said when they left the airport, when they went to the airport, there was no one there to send them off. And even his mother-in-law, she um, just um, wept and, and clung to him and begged him not to go. But they knew that God had called them, and they'd seen God working through those two years to put everything together. So they finally get to Afghanistan. They're there like a week, and there's this big parade um, that the... Uh, that the Muslims do an annual holiday parade, uh, a holiday. And lots of people in the streets. And so her husband says, hey, I'm going to um, go check this out, check out this uh, parade and take some photos. I want to try to learn the culture and learn, you know, learn about this national holiday. And so he leaves the house about 10 a.m. And at noon she gets a call that there's been a bombing uh, in downtown and their husband is injured in the hospital. And she said at that point she had peace from the Holy Spirit, and she was just calm, and she got, uh, there was a young woman there uh, who was interpreter, and the two of them went down to the hospital. They look on the list, and they can't find her husband's name, right? And all this time, she said she still had peace. Um, they're looking, looking. They can't find uh, her husband's name, so they tell her, your husband's out back behind the building. So they go out back behind the building, and there's all these dead bodies lined up, over a hundred, lined up in rows and rows. And so um, she, she sees that and she, um, she says she kind of went numb and just stood there. 
and then um, there were lots of people there looking for their family members amongst all the dead bodies, and so she didn't do anything. She just stood there, and so other people started looking for her because her husband was Korean-American, and all the others were Muslim men, and um, it would be pretty easy to find him, <laughs> obviously. He didn't look the same as the rest. And so they found his body and drug his body over in front of her. And so um, she says at that point, um, she just was in shock. And then she, um, she just started crying. And she laid on top of her husband's body, just convulsing, weeping. And the interpreter kept tapping her on the shoulder. And she didn't know why. She just kind of brushed it off. But while she was there crying, the interpreter, you know, eventually after about five minutes, the interpreter was really shaking her. And she looked up. And like all these people who were searching amongst the bodies, everyone had stopped. Everyone had stopped what they were doing and were just watching her. Just watching her. And she didn't know it at the time, but in that culture, women do not cry in public at all. And so that was like a, a, a big no-no. And so it was such a spectacle that all the people, men and women, all just stopped what they were doing to, to watch this. Because it was just something not done in that culture. And that's why the interpreter was so embarrassed. She finally is just kind of like, <laughs> get up. And so anyway, she, she gets up. And um, she goes home. And she tells her 8-year-old and 10-year-old daughters that their father is dead. And so um, she says that night she puts her kids to bed. And then she wrestles with God. And she says, God, I don't get it, you know. Um, you said, told my husband when he was a boy that he was going to be a missionary, and now he's dead. We just got to the mission field, you know. And so she said she was really angry with God, really, really angry. And she, um, she said she was super angry, but God did not comfort her. She said in the past, you know, she'd been praying for the mission field for years. She'd been teaching the Bible, actually, and, and Sunday school and all kinds of different things for years. And she said in the past, God had shown her his love and his mercy. But she says that night, God did not comfort her. Do you know what God did that night? She said that God rebuked her. That God rebuked her strongly. And she said that he showed her an aspect of God's wrath that she had never seen before. He opened up her, her whole mind, her revelation to God's wrath on that night. And God basically said to her, you're angry and you're upset because your husband is dead. You're angry and upset because your husband is dead and is in heaven. He, she said, God said to her, I'm angry and upset because my wrath was already poured out on Jesus for man's sin. And I'm angry and upset because those 100 other dead Muslim men are in hell. My son Jesus already bore the, my wrath so that those men would not have to end up in hell. And God basically said, where are the Christians to tell the share with these Muslim men? So, <clears throat> um, so God just, you know, majorly uh, spoke to her in that. And it's amazing to think that Jesus already did the hard work. He already was beaten, tortured, he suffered. Um, he went through all the things that we go through in life as far as suffering. He was betrayed by a good friend. 
There's not anything that we go through in our life that Jesus also didn't go through. And then, of course, he rose again from the dead uh, in victory. And what's left for us to do is just to share the gospel, to tell the good news to people. And this is all people, you know, who are, who are not saved. We're to share with them in love the truth of what Jesus has, has done for them. And that's all that's left to do, <laughs> is to share that good news. And God, in Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus said that this gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So that's, that's primarily what's left to do, is to preach to, to all nations. And we're to do it everywhere, you know, here, locally, um, our neighbors, um, people in other states, and people across the entire world were to share the gospel. It's quite amazing what has happened back in the late 90s when I was studying missions in Bible college. They would share with us how many people groups are unreached in the world. Um, in 1989, um, they had 11,000 people groups that were unreached with the gospel not at all. And by 2004, about 15 years later, there were 6,000 people groups unreached. So in 15 years, it went basically in half. Okay? But from just 2004 to 2008, in four years, it dropped by half again by going to only 3,000 people groups unreached. And part of that is because of technology. Um, you know, with the computers and stuff, you know, they go to certain people groups who don't have a written language, and they're able to develop an alphabet and a written language for those people. And they develop that r- alphabet, and then with the computers, they can, they can translate the Bible and, and give them the Bible actually in their own language within a fairly short amount. It used to take 25 years, but now they're doing it, they're able to do it a lot quicker. So, um, so by 2010, there were 1,500 people groups. And then by 2018, there's basically about 500 unreached people groups left. So God's call us to bring the gospel to the nations, to all the unreached people groups. And um, this mission organization, um, they go with uh, a number of 500 unreached people groups. I went to the Southern Baptist uh, Website and they have a little bit more, a, a little bit over a thousand. So um, it's based on your definition of unreached. But the missions, this missions organization, basically goes with if if there's only a small percentage of Christians there who have churches that are able to um, share with others and send others out, missionaries out, then there could only be one church. They'll call that that place reached. Um, but it's more based on cities than, um, and areas and people groups than it is whole countries. Does that make sense? But there's only about 500 left that are unreached. That means we're close to the end. That means we're close. And as you can tell by the world events going on, lots of prophecies being fulfilled, bringing the whole world to a, a one-world government, a new world order, um, that indicates that there's not much time left. And so... Um, God's call is to reach those people who Jesus has, has already died for. So, anyway, so this missionary, I, her name is Rahab. She um, had to make a decision of whether, what to do. Her husband is dead. She's now in this country alone with her two daughters. 
And for her to stay in Pakistan in that culture, if you don't have a husband or an older son or a father in the house, you're considered a prostitute. And so for her to stay would not look good. Um, and then what's her platform in which to share the gospel? You know, she's going to be considered a, a prostitute. So months go by and she's agonizing over whether to stay or go back home. Her family wants her to come back. The church wants her to come back. Um, but she's praying, trying to seek God's direction. And meanwhile, these women start coming to her house. And she didn't invite them. But when she was crying over her husband's body, a lot of the Pakistani women were there watching, and they were just curious, like, who is she? And why? She's, like, from Korea. <laughs> What's she doing in Pakistan? Why would she come there with her children? And so they started coming to her house. Well, she ends up starting you know, praying with them and um, leading to the Lord. And so anyway, she ended up planning two churches and, and then starting all these um, um, organizations and starting a medical school to train up uh, Pakistanis or, you know, Afghans to be nurses and doctors. So, and she's been there for over 10 years. Um, and she just blew me away with everything that she shared from the previous missionaries that shared, I thought our goal was to, s- to set up underground churches in the Muslim world, right? Because, you know, you c- pretty much have to be underground if they, officially they're going to kill you if you're a Christian, right? And so I thought that was the goal, was to set up underground churches. Guess what she shares? She says, you know what? Jesus calls us to worship him and glorify him for the whole world to hear and see. She says, we're not to be, God didn't call us to be an underground church, and she says, we're to proclaim Jesus from the hilltops for all the world because he's the, the answer for the world's problems and he's the one who's worthy to be worshipped, right? Uh, the pagans proclaim their gods and whatever they worship, their idols, and we're to proclaim Jesus. And so her churches in Afghanistan are, are open. And they, were, uh, they started off underground, and she said at a certain point God called them to to be open, because they she show pictures, and they're like meeting in a building, <laughs> like we do, you know. And she said there was severe persecution. Now, this has to be done at the timing of the Holy Spirit, and not everywhere can do that at the same time, um, because it is pretty dangerous. But but they're open, and they, she said the persecution that they received actually, you know, strengthened them and made them stronger as a, as a church. And so, um, so yeah, so um, God ministered to my heart while she's speaking things that she could have no idea about, but the Holy Spirit was doing it. I just talked to a guy who was driving tankers, and he's, he said he makes $120,000 a year. And I'm thinking, what am I doing doing this mission school? I'm using up my savings. I need money. <laughs> I need to go. I was just wrestling with this, you know. And, um, and then she shared that day about having all the money and all the pr- houses and all this stuff and, and saying, Lord, I'm going to trust totally in you and I'm going to go to the mission field um, and trusting that God was going to provide for their family. Um, and so, and the Lord also convicted me of just selfishness. I realized God had invested in me all these years, all these things that he'd invested in me and I'm to... Um, I'm to give back to him. So God's looking for a return on his investment. I'm involved with the Christian businessmen's group in Vegas, and they always talk about a return on investment. 
Well, God has invested in us. First, he created us. Secondly, he redeemed us. You know, he were purchased by the blood of Jesus. So we doubly belong to God to serve him no matter what. So our lives belong to him 100%. And so I had to repent of selfishness, of, you know, just being, I want to do what I want to do and uh, be in control, right? And um, God just convicted me about, uh, about that. Um, and then he just convicted me about hypocrisy of wanting to appear to be spiritual and look good in front of everybody else. And, um, you know, I realized God wanted to clean me up so that I would be in the right place with the right heart to say, here am I, send me. So that's how I um, got to the place where um, I'm now going to Pakistan. <laughs> So, um, I was going to share a little bit about the um, about their honor shame culture, but I'll have to do, maybe I'll do that when I get back. I'll have more uh, on the ground experience. Um, the you know <clears throat> God's called us to share the gospel. You know He did not give that commission to angels. And sometimes I think, why didn't God have angels share? Because they do a much better job than us, right? <laughs> We are all messed up. We got failings. We, um, um, we're just messed up, right? And so why didn't God have angels do it? And, you know, at the very end, during the tribulation period, there's two angels that go back and forth across the sky proclaiming the everlasting gospel. I think that's God's last, um, that's his patience, giving people one last chance to repent. But at this time, God's called us. And for years I thought, why did God not give angels this commission instead of us? But check it out. The angels have not experienced, the good angels have not experienced forgiveness and God's grace. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that they long to look into God's grace. They don't understand. They scratch their heads. They look at us simple people and, they, and they're in the presence of God and all of his holiness and they look at us simple people and they actually see new aspects of God's love that they can't see. They wouldn't see otherwise. And so we're the ones who have experienced forgiveness and God's grace. We're the ones to share the gospel with, with other people. Now, God does use angels in this whole process, and he does give visions. And you've probably heard that lots of Muslims throughout the world have been receiving visions. Here's what I did not know. Muslims do not get saved by a vision of Jesus. The, the, because of the, you know, Islam has such a hold on their mind that they're, most of them are not even willing to hear anything about the gospel. I mean, they just, they think the Holy Bible and Jesus and all this stuff is, they want nothing to do with it. They won't even listen, right? So it takes God radically moving in their lives for them to even get to the place where they're willing to hear the gospel. And so the vision just opens them up to where they're willing to, to hear. Does that make sense? So guess what? The Muslims don't get, people say, you don't need to go to the Middle East and share with Muslims. Jesus is appearing to them in visions. No need to go there, right? Not the case. They all get saved the same way we did. Somebody shared Jesus with us, <laughs> you know? And they, some of them get shared with before the vision. Many get shared with after the vision. I've read many testimonies from people in Pakistan where they had the vision of Jesus 
And some didn't even know who the man in white was. But they knew it was good, and they wanted to find out more about it, and they somehow knew it wasn't Allah. And, but they don't have any Christians to talk to, so they just wander around thinking, how am I going to, I need to find out what, hap- what this vision was, right? And so, um, guess what? We get to be the answer to their, to their quest, to their prayers. Um, many of them are still praying to Allah, asking Allah what the vision was. They don't understand it, right? And then Christians show up. And that is a common, common testimony. And um, very, very common. So one of the prayer requests is that God will bring us across Muslims who are open to hearing the gospel. Because if they're not open, you, you can't really share much. Um, but those who are open that God's already working in, uh, we're asking God to bring us across, across them. And so um, in the country that's you know, 99% uh, Muslim, they're not going to, it's very rare they're going to run into Christians. So we're going there saying, God, here we are, <laughs> and use us. And so there's a lot of uh, powerful testimonies of, of God doing that. So, so this uh, verse right up here, I'm about to finish, uh, is what I've been praying for our team. And um, the, I've been sort of really encouraged about intercessory prayer. And we're all called to pray and intercede. And I have prayer letters back there, and I've already raised the support to go. I got all the costs covered, so praise God. He was very faithful to do that. So I don't need any more money, but I do need prayer support. And um, that's what definitely what I uh, request. Um, but one way to pray, a lot of people say, well, I don't know what to pray, what to pray for. If you take a passage of scripture, you can just pray that scripture back to God, and you can pray that scripture for other people and for yourself. And so there's many great prayers that Paul gave us in both Ephesians and Colossians, and then right here in Second Thessalonians, uh, Paul's prayer, he says, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've been praying that our team would be worthy of this calling that we're going on. And it's, a, it's about nine of us, and we're from all different parts of the United States. And one friend of mine, there was four of us, and it's down to two of us because, you know, um, just uh, different things happen. But um, uh, we're from all over the United States. But I'm praying for this team that we might be worthy of this calling. Now, of course, worthiness, none of us is worthy in of ourselves. And we're not worthy to stand before God except by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're justified in Christ, and we're worthy um, by the blood of Christ, we're worthy to be uh, cleansed of our sins and to be before God. But there's also worthiness as far as worthy, um, as far as walking in the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we want to be worthy as far as producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If we're a team and we're fighting amongst each other, um, we're not really worthy for the calling, right? <laughs> and so, um, so that's one of my prayers, that we might be worthy of this uh, calling and that we would fulfill God's good pleasure in his goodness. And so his goodness is that all people come to a saving knowledge of, of, of him and of what his son has done, done for us. And so 
Our goal is to fulfill his goodness. And then we're to do the work of faith with power. So it's a work, right? We physically have to go and try to engage people. Um, and so, but it also requires faith. We're trusting the Lord and taking steps of faith. Like we had to pray before we go into an area. Is this an area, God, you want us to go into? You know, we could get killed there, you know. And um, so here's a, another prayer request. The, the Pakistani government just uh, made a new policy beginning, um, well, beginning on a day that the same day we're flying into the country. So I can't tell you what day exactly, but um, um, the day we're flying in, the Pakistani government has made, a, a, is now requiring vaccine uh, what's it called? Certification, passport, vaccine, passport, certification. They're now requiring that. And um, that's of, of great concern to us. Um, we, so we don't know what to do. Um, so we're praying. Uh, two of the nine of us have the vaccine. And um, I mean, I don't have it, and I'm not planning on getting it. So this could stop the whole thing. Uh, we don't actually know yet. The, it begins at 12 a.m. and on that day, and we fly in. We get in at 1 a.m. <laughs> so the question is, and we spent thousands of dollars on plane tickets. So I, I have insurance, but I'm not sure what all it covers. Um, I haven't read all the fine print yet. But um, we have to take a step of faith. Do we l tr fly there and try to get into the country and hope that they don't start enforcing it at 1 a.m.? <laughs> Um, that there's nobody there to enforce it, um, I don't know. Because uh, we fly all the way there, we might have to immediately, they might send us back. We might not be able to get into the country. So God has raised us up as laborers to go to the harvest field, so pray that we can actually get into the harvest field. Um, and I'm thinking maybe we can move the flight dates up or something. Um, not really sure, but we're asking God for direction and what to do. So, um, so that requires walking by faith. Uh, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And I think this is just a test because once we're in country, we're going to have even bigger um, tests of faith to trust the Lord for uh, as to whether we should do something or not. So, and then it's possible some other, so these, there's teams that are going all over the Middle East in the next three months. Maybe we're, this will get closed um, and we'll go to a different uh, a different country, maybe in September. I don't really know, but um, so that's a that's another prayer request. So, any questions? Thank you all for listening. <laughs>